You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 41, To the Land of the Gods. Thanks for joining me. We last left the narrative in late 1797. France remained at war with Britain, but there was finally peace on the continent. With the war in a stalemate, Napoleon Bonaparte was preparing a daring expedition to Egypt to seize the country as a French colony. By early 1798, preparations were in full swing. This would be one of the largest expeditionary forces ever assembled to date, roughly 40,000 soldiers. Napoleon christened them the Army of the Orient. Many were veterans of the Army of Italy. Napoleon considered them the best soldiers in the French army. He knew what they were capable of and was sure of their loyalty and commitment. As always, Alexandre Berthier would serve as chief of staff. Napoleon's aides included Captain Louis Bonaparte, his 19-year-old brother, and Lieutenant Eugène de Beauharnais, Josephine's son by her first husband. Many of the senior officers were familiar faces from the Italian campaign. General Lannes and General Marmont had been by Napoleon's side since Toulon, and they would both accompany him to Egypt. Joachim Murat, the vain, daring cavalry officer who had helped Napoleon hold the line on 13 Vendémiaires, was there as well. General Elzéar de Martin would serve as chief of artillery. He had been Napoleon's own commanding officer back when he was still an anonymous captain. But the most senior French commanders are new to our story, men who made their careers in Germany or in the Low Countries, and would be fighting under Napoleon for the first time. They included Louis Dessay, general of division. Dessay's background was similar to Bonaparte's. He was 29, just a year older than Napoleon. He was born into a poor noble family, attended military school, and was commissioned as an officer in his teens. He languished as a junior officer before embracing the revolution and rising quickly through the republican ranks. Napoleon would come to rely on Dessay, but despite their similarities and mutual respect for one another's abilities, they never really warmed to each other. Another division would be led by Jean-Baptiste Kleber, a seasoned veteran who had begun his military career in the Austrian army. He was retired from the service, living a quiet life as an architect, when he was swept up by the revolution. By 1794, he was the right hand of General Jourdan, who led a French army in Germany. 
General of Division Jacques-François Manu was by now a rare breed, a former baron who had been a major participant in the early stages of the revolution, as a delegate to the Estates General way back in 1789. Somehow he had escaped death through all of the subsequent purges and political turmoil. Manu was a committed liberal and an intellectual. He experienced his exposure to the East more profoundly than any other senior officer on the expedition. The chief of cavalry would be General Thomas Alexandre Dumas, a towering, colorful Haitian who remains to date the highest-ranking black officer to ever serve in a European army. He was the father of the famous 19th-century author, the most prominent of several illustrious descendants. Dumas had joined the Army of Italy late in the First Italian Campaign, and quickly won Napoleon's admiration. However, he also made an enemy of Berthier, which would hamper his relationship with his commander-in-chief. We'll learn more about these men and introduce some of their colleagues as we continue to follow the campaign. As I mentioned in episode 39, this would be much more than a military operation. Napoleon envisioned the expedition as an intellectual enterprise. To this end, he also assembled a corps of 167 civilian scientists, engineers, and thinkers, which he referred to as the savants. Along with horses, muskets, and cannon, the French Navy would haul scientific instruments, surveying equipment, and even a hot air balloon across the Mediterranean the very cutting edge of aeronautical technology, which would become a symbol for French ingenuity under the Republic. Hundreds of transport ships would be needed to carry the army to Egypt. The flotilla would be escorted by a substantial naval detachment. Thirteen ships of the line, the heavy battleships of the Napoleonic era, and fourteen frigates, the lighter, faster ships which served as scouts and support vessels. This fleet included many of the newest, most advanced ships in the Republican Navy, most notably the expedition's flagship, the aptly named L'Orient, which means the East. At 5,000 tons, she was one of the largest warships afloat, and bristled with 118 cannon, more than some armies. It was an impressive armada, but the French strategy at sea would be to avoid the enemy, not engage them. The British enjoyed such an advantage on the oceans that the cream of the Republican Navy was barely enough to match the British Mediterranean fleet, a smaller secondary branch of the Royal Navy. And even though the invasion fleet and the Mediterranean fleet were roughly equal in size, the British far outclassed the French in terms of seamanship and leadership. The Republicans had taken a beating in almost every single naval engagement with the British since the beginning of the war. The French had little confidence in their navy, and could ill afford more losses. No one wanted a repeat of the disastrous invasion of Ireland. They would play it safe. And so, as the expedition gathered in southern France, its destination was kept a strict secret. Only a handful of the most senior officers and civilian political leaders knew of Napoleon's plans. As you can imagine, speculation about this mysterious mission ran wild among the assembled sailors and soldiers. Consensus seemed to have been that they would head west, to the Caribbean. The thought of invading distant, exotic Egypt, which was not even at war with France, was beyond imagination. Whether it was through luck or deliberate disinformation from Bonaparte, the British believed these rumors and focused their efforts on the western Mediterranean. Napoleon's way was clear. 
on May 19, 1798, the Armada set sail. Its first destination was not Egypt, but the island of Malta, just south of Sicily. Malta sits at an important strategic location, smack dab in the center of the Mediterranean, near one of the narrowest parts of the sea between Italy and Tunisia. It was also geographically inaccessible and heavily fortified. Napoleon himself called it the strongest position in Europe. Controlling Malta would be an important step to securing the Army of the Orient's supply lines back to Toulon. Unfortunately for the French, the authorities on Malta were quite unsympathetic. Since the 16th century, the island had been ruled by the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, commonly known as the Order of St. John, or the Knights of Malta. The Knights were a sovereign Catholic religious order, which, as the name suggests, had its origins in the medieval Crusades. By Napoleon's day, the Knights had long ago given up on retaking the Holy City for Christendom, but they retained that medieval tradition of holy war against Islam in their own way. Of course, no tradition survives over centuries without changing to adapt to the times, and the Knights were no exception. As the Western footholds in the Middle East were snuffed out, and the European powers were increasingly forced into a defensive posture against the Ottomans, the Knights converted Malta into a fortress, built up a formidable fleet of war galleys, and served as a bulwark against Turkish ambitions in the central Mediterranean. By the time of the Renaissance, the Order's primary mission was maritime. In between clashes with the Turks, the Knights turned their fleet to piracy, raiding Muslim shipping and coastal settlements. As the Ottoman threat faded, this religious piracy increasingly became the Order's main occupation. They claimed theological justification, but piracy is nasty business. The knights preyed on unarmed, defenseless people. Pilgrims on their way to Mecca were a favorite target. Any high-ranking prisoners were ransomed. The rest were enslaved. If Malta could be used as a base for the coming campaign, Napoleon would have a huge advantage. But the Order of St. John could not have been less inclined to help. They had greeted the French Revolution with hostility. Not only was this a Catholic institution, one of their main sources of new recruits was the French nobility. Malta was one of the most heavily fortified locations on earth, and the knights were famous for their ability to withstand sieges. But Napoleon was not deterred. He planned to seize the island. When the French arrived off the coast of Malta on June 6th, Napoleon began issuing ultimatums. When the knights refused his demand to allow the entire French fleet into the main harbor at Valletta, he began to land troops on the coast. As the knights and their local Maltese militias attempted to stop the landings, it immediately became clear that the order had gone soft. This had been an elite military organization during its struggles with the Ottomans. But since then, their numbers had dwindled, and they had become too accustomed to preying on merchants and pilgrims, rather than facing professional soldiers in battle. The French easily captured footholds outside the main fortress of Valletta. Napoleon continued to bombard the order with threats and demands to surrender. He was bluffing. The British Navy was combing the Mediterranean on the hunt for the French fleet. Napoleon could not afford to become entangled in a lengthy siege which would give British Admiral Horatio Nelson a chance to catch up to the expedition while it was vulnerable. 
Fortunately for Bonaparte, the bluffs worked. He made an offer promising to respect private property and religious institutions if the knights capitulated, and facing the alternative of a hard-fought battle against a superior enemy, the Order of St. John accepted. On June 12th, His Most Eminent Highness, Brother Ferdinand von Hompesch zu Bolheim, the 71st Grand Master of the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, surrendered to the French Republic. Believe it or not, the Knights continued to exist as an institution today, now known as the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. They are a lay Catholic religious order, mostly involved in charity work and historic preservation. They even still enjoy the status of a sovereign state. However, that's mostly a legal technicality. After Bonaparte occupied Malta, they would never again govern territory or actually operate as an independent state. The order had survived as a sovereign entity for nearly seven centuries. Now it was just another on the long list of ancient institutions snuffed out by the revolution. This wasn't the first time Bonaparte had served as the agent for this type of change, and it would be far from the last. Napoleon broke his promises to the Grand Master. He detested the knights. As Napoleon saw it, they used superstition to justify a dishonorable existence as pirates. He particularly abhorred slavery, which was one of the cornerstones of the order's existence. Once the French took possession of the citadel at Valletta, the property of the order was seized, and most of the knight brothers were deported to mainland Europe. The organization that had served as the island's government and social backbone for centuries was banished, and Napoleon threw himself into creating a new system with characteristic speed and energy. He appointed a provisional administration for the island, including a mix of Frenchmen and native Maltese, who had been excluded from government under the rule of the order. He also drew up a constitution for the island, enshrining radical Enlightenment concepts which are probably familiar to you by now equality before the law, freedom of speech, and rational professional administration. Using the money and property seized from the order, Bonaparte founded a secular school, the first in the island's history, along with a library, museum, botanical garden, and astronomical observatory. Perhaps most importantly, he banned slavery, and made arrangements for all Muslim hostages and slaves captured during the night's piracy campaigns to return to their home countries. This was a reflection of Napoleon's personal attitudes, but it was also a shrewd political move. He hoped to govern predominantly Muslim populations in the Middle East. The Knights had been a blight on the Islamic world for centuries. Anyone in the Mediterranean who had ever boarded a ship flying a crescent flag knew the fear of being killed, or worse, enslaved by the order. The plight of the knight's prisoners had been a cause celeb throughout the Muslim world for centuries. Breaking the power of the order and freeing their captives was a strong opening salvo in the battle for hearts and minds in the Middle East. All of these changes were accomplished in just seven days. When people say Napoleon got more done in a week than most people do in a lifetime, they're not exaggerating. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. 
brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. One week is a remarkably short time to write a constitution and create a new government from scratch. But it is a shockingly long stay when you bear in mind the expedition's tight time constraints. Every hour they stayed in port in Malta was another hour the British Navy might find them, catch up, and put the expedition to a grisly end before it had really begun. But even with that risk, Napoleon wasn't the type to leave a task undone. Malta was now a possession of the Republic. He couldn't allow it to remain ruled by some corrupt oligarchy of fanatical foreign pirates governed by superstition and archaic tradition. On June 19th, the expedition finally set sail once again, leaving behind a small garrison. Malta was now the linchpin of a tenuous line of supply stretching back to Toulon. The soldiers were probably sorry their stay on the island was so short. Life on board the transports was unpleasant. Conditions were cramped and unsanitary. Food was bad, mostly hard, flavorless biscuits, supplemented by a little meat or fish, and only about 4 ounces, or 113 grams, of fresh vegetables. There was hardly anything to drink, either. The daily wine ration was 15 ounces, or about 426 milliliters. That's about three glasses a day, more than ample for the average modern drinker, but practically nothing by the standards of hard-drinking 18th century soldiers. There was little to do but worry. Scan the horizon for a storm cloud, or the sails of a British frigate. Most of these men were veterans, and accustomed to facing death, but only on the battlefield, where they understood the risks and had some agency to avoid them. Out on the high seas, survival was totally out of their hands. A question of fate. It must have left them uneasy. Conditions were a bit more comfortable on the Lorient, the expedition's flagship, which carried most of the senior officers and the savants, Napoleon's scholars. With so many intellectuals aboard, they passed the time with readings and debates that sometimes stretched over days. Napoleon himself rarely took part. Despite being an islander, he was never comfortable on the water. This was a foreign world to him, and anything he couldn't understand made him uneasy. On a purely physical level, he also suffered from seasickness, although this was eventually alleviated when he installed rollers on the feet of his bed, so it rolled around the cabin with the heaves and pitches of the ship. It sounds like something out of a slapstick comedy, but apparently it worked. This bumper car bed was the only place on the Lorient Napoleon was free from his seasickness, so he spent most of the voyage reclining, contemplating maps, drawing up plans, and reading about the land he hoped to conquer. He paid particular attention to a French translation of the Quran, the holy book of Islam, which Muslims believed to be the word of God revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. Through his studies of Egyptian history and the Islamic faith, Bonaparte began to formulate his approach to the people he hoped to rule, a pitch, as we might call it today, to the hearts and minds of the Egyptians. 
True, the French were foreigners, and he knew foreign rulers always had to pass a higher bar of legitimacy than any indigenous government. To pass that hurdle, Napoleon would play on the foreignness of the Mamluks, emphasize the potential benefits of French administration, and demonstrate respect for Islam. This presentation of sympathy for the Muslim religion was actually quite genuine. As he read the Quran and studied Islamic history, Napoleon found himself fascinated. He gained a special admiration for the Prophet Muhammad, which fits in pretty well with what we know about his other idols from the past. Bonaparte was fascinated with what people used to call the great men of history, larger-than-life figures who conquered on the battlefield, but also left a legacy as lawgivers and just rulers. If you strip away his theological significance and think of Muhammad purely as a historical figure, he slots in quite naturally alongside Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. There are people who claim Napoleon actually converted to Islam, but I think that's reading way too much into some pretty thin evidence. Napoleon had a deep, fundamental aversion to anything he regarded as superstition, and that included all organized religion. Islam was no exception. Years later, he would famously state, quote, I prefer the religion of Muhammad. It is less ridiculous than ours. End quote. That's about as highly as he ever praised any religion, but it's hardly the enthusiasm of a convert. He was much more effusive in his praise for the Prophet himself. Quote, Muhammad was a great commander, eloquent, a great statesman. He revived his motherland and created a new people and a new power in the midst of the Arabian deserts. End quote. So, as you can see, he held Muhammad in high esteem, but he talked about him as an historical figure, not as a prophet. He talked about Caesar and Alexander in much the same way, and it didn't mean he had converted to Greco-Roman paganism. For nearly three weeks on board the Lorient, Napoleon spent most of his time in bed, ensconced in his books. Since childhood, he had a rich inner life and active imagination particularly when it came to fantasies of greatness. Now he was headed to the land of the gods, at the head of an army, and spending his days feeding that imagination on books. Alone in his cabin, rolling around on his wheeled bed, Bonaparte was practically intoxicated with his own ambitions and orientalist fantasies. In later years, he would describe his mindset, quote, I saw the way to achieve all my dreams. I would found a new religion. I saw myself marching towards Asia, mounted on an elephant, a turban on my head, and in my hand a new Quran that I would have composed to suit my needs. In my enterprises, I would have combined the experiences of two worlds, exploiting the realm of all history for my own purpose. End quote. To me, that seems almost delusional at first glance. This passage has become infamous over the years, and has often been misused and misinterpreted. We know from the source that Napoleon didn't say this until 1802 at the earliest, four years after he landed in Egypt. So that's Napoleon describing his mindset in retrospect, with the knowledge that all his hopes for the campaign were far too optimistic and his fantasies of the East would soon be dashed by the messy realities of conquest and colonial administration. 
So I don't think he literally believed he would be riding around on an elephant wearing a turban, propagating a new religion. I think he was exaggerating for effect, to illustrate that he had become totally intoxicated with the mystique of the Orient. Still, we know Napoleon had almost limitless ambitions, and was self-confident almost to the point of delusion. So, if four years later, even he was willing to admit that he had gotten a little carried away during this period, that's really saying something. On July 1st, he wrote a now-famous proclamation to the army that's much more grounded. Quote, Soldiers, you are about to undertake a conquest, the effects of which will be incalculable upon civilization and upon the world of commerce. You will deal the surest and sharpest blow to England while we wait to kill her outright. We shall make fatiguing marches, we shall fight battles, we shall succeed in all our enterprises. Fate is with us. The Mamluk lords, who exclusively favor English commerce, who have mistreated our merchants, and who tyrannize over the inhabitants of the Nile, will cease to exist within days of our arrival. We will be living among Muslims. The first article of their faith is, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. Do not contradict them. Respect their muftis and imams, as you have respected rabbis and bishops. The Roman legions respected all religions. You will find customs here different from those of Europe. You must habituate yourselves to them. People here treat their wives differently from us, but in all countries, the man who commits rape is a monster. Pillage only enriches a few men. It dishonors all of us and destroys our resources. It renders the people hostile when it is necessary to make them friendly. The first town we shall enter was built by Alexander. At each step, we shall make discoveries that will inspire every Frenchman. End quote. With those words, on July 1st, 1798, Soldiers from the Army of the Orient began to disembark on a deserted beach not far from the city of Alexandria. The landing was a fiasco. It wasn't until the 20th century that militaries really perfected amphibious warfare, the technology, doctrines, and training to quickly and easily land troops on a beach simply weren't there. To make matters worse, a storm blew in just after the operation began. Fortunately for the French, the infrastructure, technology, and manpower that might have enabled the Mamluks to contest the landing didn't exist either. The Army of the Orient would have to fight the elements, but not the enemy. Even so, dozens of men drowned, and valuable equipment was lost. By nightfall on July 1st, only a handful of troops had successfully made it to the beach. Leaving them stranded until the storm lifted was not an option. And so the French continued through the night, battling the storm in their tiny longboats. As you might expect, the soldiers and sailors of the expedition were jumpy, and the chaos of the landing was occasionally interrupted by false alarms, rumors of a British frigate on the horizon, or a Mamluk army creeping towards the beach. Napoleon himself landed after midnight. He made no grand gestures or pronouncements, but simply laid down for a nap probably relieved to be on solid ground once again. By three in the morning, a decent-sized strike force of about 4,000 men had assembled on the beach. They were damp, exhausted, and demoralized, but ready to march. 
It was almost like they had started the campaign by fighting a bruising, indecisive skirmish against the Mediterranean. Unloading the entire army in this fashion would be folly, and Napoleon had no plans to do so. He would use these initial 4,000 troops to capture Alexandria, thus seizing a real commercial port, where the rest of the army could disembark safely and efficiently. In the pre-dawn hours, he formed his men into a column and marched on the city of Alexander. This was a risky move. Bonaparte had only around 4,000 bedraggled infantry, with a limited supply of ammunition. They had no cavalry, which meant they were marching blind, with no one to scout ahead or screen the column from enemy horsemen. They had no artillery, which would present a serious problem if they encountered any significant fortifications at Alexandria. If Napoleon's gamble failed, there was nowhere to run but the deep blue sea. Just before dawn, trouble appeared on the horizon. Unknown horsemen were stalking the column. Whoever was responsible for patrolling this stretch of territory had become aware of the French presence, and were preparing a response. As it became clear the French had no cavalry of their own to ward off this type of attention, the ranks of the horsemen swelled to several hundred, and they grew bolder, riding between the French formations in an attempt to pick off stragglers and intimidate the invaders. The horsemen were outnumbered nearly ten to one, but Napoleon only had infantry, and they were in little condition to fight, only a few hours after the ordeal of a landing. If they played their cards right, these mysterious enemy cavalry could have done some damage, or at least created a dangerous delay on the march to Alexandria. Fortunately for the French, these were not trained soldiers, but Bedouin tribesmen, essentially civilians, armed only with swords and lances. They didn't have the stomach or the know-how to challenge 4,000 professional soldiers. The Bedouin captured a few stragglers and vanished back into the desert. Napoleon wrote, quote, If these 500 Arabs had been Mamluks, they would have achieved a great success in this first encounter. End quote. As the morning wore on, the French were introduced to another enemy that would dog them the entire campaign, the heat of the Egyptian desert. The column's only supply of water was whatever the men had brought from the ships in their canteens. After just a few hours in the pre-morning heat, that was completely exhausted. The French arrived on the outskirts of Alexandria at around six in the morning and found the city walls swarming with Egyptians. These were not soldiers, but ordinary Alexandrians. Word of Napoleon's landing had reached the city, and its people were eager to get a glimpse of the invaders. Out in the harbor, more crowds watched the French fleet surround the port, until their sails filled the horizon. Nothing like this had happened in living memory. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon sent a message into the city, quote, The Mamluks have been harassing our merchants, and I have come to demand reparations. I will be in Alexandria tomorrow. You have nothing to fear. We French are great friends of the Ottoman Sultan, and you should conduct yourselves as you would towards an ally. However, if you commit the slightest hostility against the French army, I will treat you as an enemy and make you regret it, although it is far from my heart's desire to do so. End quote. The Mamluk commander inside Alexandria was a man named El Kuraim, about whom we know almost nothing. If he hoped to defend the city, he did not have much to work with. The core of the garrison was a detachment of about 500 Ottoman Janissaries. As Derek Davison explained last episode, the Janissary Corps had once been among the most elite military institutions on Earth, but by 1798, that glorious legacy was far in the past. The Janissaries at Alexandria were poorly trained, poorly equipped, and inexperienced. They were little better than a militia. There were only a few cannon in the city, and as the Janissaries rushed to prepare for battle, none of them proved to be functional, which is a moot point because there wasn't enough powder or shot to actually fire them on a sustained basis. The cream of the Mamluk military was, of course, the Mamluks, the elite slave soldiers who fought as heavy cavalry with lances, sabers, and pistols. Generally speaking, the Mamluk cavalry were the most experienced, best motivated, best trained, and best equipped troops in Egypt, and only 20 of them were present in Alexandria when Napoleon arrived. If he chose to fight the French, El Kuraim would be facing nearly impossible odds. Nonetheless, the Mamluk Bey resolved to defy Napoleon's threats. He would respond with action, not words. El Kuraim gathered his 20 Mamluks, rode out of the city, and ambushed a French scouting party. He personally beheaded a captain and rode back into the city in triumph, parading through the streets, brandishing the hapless French officer's head like a trophy. He would not be treating the French as allies and friends of the Sultan. This incident with the severed head was a clear message to the French but it also served to remind any wavering residents of the city who was in charge. The Mamluks ruled by violence. The French officer's head was a potent symbol of El Kuraim's mastery of violence, and thus his control over Alexandria. Soon, the Mamluks would get their first taste of how the French meted out violence. As anyone who attended a public execution at the Place de la Révolution could tell you, Republican violence could be just as theatrical, but there was also a precise, methodical quality to the way they dealt out death. This wasn't the brash, personalized violence of a warlord carrying a bloody head through the streets to send a message, but the cold, calibrated, faceless brutality of a modern nation-state on the march. Napoleon would now bring that machine to bear on Egypt. But on this day, there was no time to be measured or methodical. Bonaparte's men needed water. They needed to secure a port to unload the rest of the army. 
These were not concerns that could wait. And so Napoleon prepared the column for a simple frontal assault. His 4,000 men would attack along the entire length of the city's defenses, attempt to batter down the gates and scale the walls however they could. This was pure brute force. There wasn't time or resources for anything fancier. The bugle sounded charge, and the storm began. The French were lucky Alexandria was so poorly defended. El Kuraim's men were so short on ammunition that many were reduced to throwing stones at the oncoming French. The gunpowder they did have was of such poor quality that stones may have been the more potent weapon. General Kleber was actually shot straight in the head and lived to tell the tale. The shot that struck him was propelled by a weak gunpowder charge, and so it lacked the force to do fatal damage. In some places, the walls were in such poor condition that the French were able to partially dismantle them or knock them down with sheer muscle power. At the main gate, General Marmont led a squad of axe-wielding engineers who hacked their way into the city. After only a few mad, desperate minutes, the storming of Alexandria was already over. Bonaparte's men were streaming into the city at multiple locations. The garrison melted away into the city. A few were falling back to look for new positions, but most were hoping only to save themselves. Alexandria had fallen. Order broke down among the French troops as they scattered through the streets. They weren't looking for loot, but for water. A captain who participated in the assault wrote in a letter home, quote, It was thirst which drove our soldiers in the capture of Alexandria. Such was our state that it was either find water or die. We had no choice. End quote. Most of the garrison had had enough, but a few continued to resist bravely. Small groups of janissaries, or even isolated individuals, barricaded themselves in houses or strongpoints, and sniped at the thirst-crazed French as they occupied the city. Napoleon himself had a close call with one of these holdouts. The French had suffered only a few dozen casualties conquering the city of Alexander. Sources report as many as 800 people inside the city were killed, suggesting the garrison suffered heavy casualties, and a number of civilians were killed in the fighting. El Kuraim survived the onslaught. As the city fell, he gathered a handful of loyalists and retreated to Faros Island, a small promontory in the harbor which had once been the site of the famous Lighthouse of Alexandria, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Under the right circumstances, this might have been a good position for a small force to hold out against a much larger, better-equipped army but the surviving Mamluks had little in the way of supplies, and the French advantage in numbers and firepower was too overwhelming. Recognizing the hopelessness of his situation, El Kuraim opened negotiations with the French. The brave Mamluk literally threw himself at Napoleon's feet, pledging his service if his life was spared. And Napoleon accepted. He needed someone who understood the city to help him restore order, far more than he needed retribution. And so, El Kuraim continued to serve as the ruling civic authority in Alexandria, now under a different master. With a real port finally under French control, disembarking the rest of the expedition and its supplies and equipment went much smoother. By sunset on July 3rd, most of the French were safely on Egyptian soil. Napoleon had his first eastern conquest under his belt, 
and his Arabic printing press was unloaded and ready. The time had come to release a proclamation introducing himself to the Egyptian people. Quote, In the name of God, ever clement and merciful, there is no God but God. He has no sons and shares power with no one. From the commander-in-chief of the French army, General Bonaparte. People of Egypt, you will be told by our enemies that I have come to destroy your religion. Do not believe them. Tell them I have come to restore your rights, punish your usurpers, and raise the true worship of Islam. Tell them that I venerate God, his prophet, and the Quran more than the Mamluks. For too long, this rabble of slaves, bought in Georgia and the Caucasus, has tyrannized the most beautiful country in the world. In the eyes of God, all men are equal. Wisdom, talents, and virtue alone constitute the difference between them. So, what are the virtues that entitle the Mamluks to all the enjoyments of life? Who owns all the great estates? The Mamluks. Who have all the loveliest slaves, the most splendid horses, and the finest houses? If Egypt is their private property, let them produce the lease from God by which they hold it. Once you had great cities, huge canals, and prosperous trade, what has destroyed all of this if not the greed, iniquity, and tyranny of the Mamluks? However, God is just and merciful, and he has ordained that the reign of the Mamluks shall come to an end. Egyptians will administer the entire country. The wisest, most educated, and most virtuous will govern, and the people will be happy. Three times happy are those who shall side with us. They shall prosper in their fortune and their rank. Happy are they who remain neutral. They will have time to become acquainted with us, and will come around to our side. But woe, three times woe, on those who take up arms for the Mamluks and fight against us. For them there will be no hope. They shall perish. End quote. It's certainly grandiose. It almost sounds biblical. But setting aside the bombastic prose, I think we can clearly see Napoleon's pitch to the Egyptians. The rule of the Mamluks was unjust and incompetent. He promised the French would set things right, rule well, with an even hand, and include Egyptians in the government. This wasn't a bad approach. As we discussed in the previous episode, the Mamluks really were ineffective and unpopular. Egypt had stagnated under their lawless, unstable rule. They really did take the best of everything for themselves and leave the local Egyptian Arab population shut out of all but the lowliest ranks of government and administration. Under the circumstances, it wasn't so far-fetched to think people might be receptive to the idea of new rulers, particularly if they brought equality before the law, modern administration, participatory government, and new commercial opportunities. The hard part was not disabusing people of any love for the Mamluks, but convincing them that the French were a preferable, viable alternative. Napoleon planned to do this primarily through example, demonstrating his fitness to rule through his own conduct and the conduct of the army. He also hoped to use the religious angle. The Mamluks were notoriously impious, and Napoleon believed he could play up his personal sympathy for Islam and highlight some of the superficial similarities between French Republican-style Enlightenment deism and Islam to paint himself as a better protector of the faith than the Mamluks. 
At first glance, this seems like a lost cause, maybe even a bit bizarre. After all, the Mamluks were, nominally, mainstream Sunni Muslims, just like most Egyptians. And Napoleon was clearly not, no matter how much he tried to blur the lines between his own beliefs and Islam. But the Middle East is a diverse place. Its history is full of examples of infidel rulers finding some modus vivendi with the local religion, even serving as its patron and protector. Muslims had ruled peacefully over Christians and Jews. Shia Muslim leaders had forged good relationships with Sunni communities, and vice versa. Back in the Middle Ages, even some of the Crusader states enjoyed periods of cordial relations with some of their non-Catholic subjects. Maybe it wasn't such a stretch to think that an Enlightenment deist could find some mutually beneficial equilibrium with a Muslim population. After all, the Mamluks were the only alternative, and they didn't look much better. There was one big fundamental problem with Napoleon's proclamation. Hardly anyone could read it. For starters, only a small minority of Egyptians were actually literate, but even they struggled to understand it. Napoleon didn't speak Arabic. He wrote the proclamation in French, then gave it to his Arabic translators. Unfortunately for him, these men were Maltese Catholics, not native Arabic speakers. Now, they really did know Arabic, they hadn't lied to Napoleon about that, but we're talking about the level of proficiency you might need to negotiate a business deal or manage some of the order's Arab slaves back on Malta. Translating this wordy official document into high literary Arabic was far beyond their powers. You might imagine a busboy who has picked up some rudimentary Spanish while working in a Mexican restaurant suddenly being asked to translate the Declaration of Independence into proper 18th century Castilian. Predictably, the translators butchered Napoleon's lofty rhetoric into a barely intelligible pigeon peppered with colloquialisms and Maltese loanwords. This certainly wasn't formal Arabic, worthy of a great commander. It read like it was written by a Maltese sailor, not the impression Bonaparte had been hoping to make. I chose to highlight this incident because it's the first of many communication failures we'll see over the course of the campaign. Whatever Napoleon's hopes and intentions, simply expressing himself to the Egyptians would sometimes prove impossible, even on the most basic level. Napoleon and the French were certainly unlikely candidates to rule Egypt but perhaps not as unlikely as they might seem. Bonaparte's pitch had some genuine appeal to a population that had watched their country grow listless under a tyrannical, inward-looking regime, which, it bears repeating, was also made up of foreign soldiers. Of course, Napoleon still had a huge number of military and political hurdles to clear before he could even think of establishing himself as the legitimate ruler of Egypt. Alexandria may have been one of the most famous cities in the country, but it was greatly reduced from its glory days. This had once been one of the great metropolitan centers of the entire Mediterranean, but in 1798, it was not much more than a trading post. Estimates vary wildly, but there were probably somewhere between 10 and 20,000 residents of Alexandria, not tiny by 18th century standards, but far from a major city. The vast majority of Egyptians lived further up the Nile, near the rich agricultural lands of the floodplain. The city of Cairo alone was home to over 300,000 people, well over ten times the size of Alexandria. 
But this was an agrarian country, and most of the population lived in the countryside, somewhere around 3 million people total, according to the most conservative estimates. So if you want to be as generous as possible to Napoleon, the conquest of Alexandria had brought roughly two-thirds of 1% of the people of Egypt under his sovereignty. Totally insignificant. He had a lot more conquering to do before he might be taken seriously as a potential ruler of the entire country. For the time being, Egypt was still under the authority of the Ottoman Sultan, Selim III, represented in Cairo by Abu Bakir Pasha, his viceroy. But as we learned last episode, this state of affairs was little more than a legal technicality, which bore no resemblance to the reality on the ground. The viceroy, Abu Bakir Pasha, was such an insignificant figure that I don't think we'll have cause to mention his name ever again. Real political power lay in the hands of two Mamluk warlords. Murad Bey held the title of Sheikh al-Balad, roughly meaning Lord of the City, in reference to Cairo. This was generally regarded as the foremost rank in the Mamluk hierarchy. We don't know much about him. He was in his late 40s or early 50s and came from somewhere in the Caucasus, probably Circassia or Georgia. He was a heavyset man with narrow piercing eyes and an impressive white beard. Murad's temper and capacity for extreme violence were legendary, even by Mamluk standards. He had a close, long-standing relationship with another powerful Mamluk named Ibrahim Bey, a Georgian who held the title of Commander of the Hajj, generally considered the second most prestigious position in Mamluk Egypt. Ibrahim Bey was the older of the two, in his mid-sixties at the time of Napoleon's invasion. Most sources describe Murad Bey as the monarch, and Ibrahim Bey as his deputy and overall military commander of the Mamluk forces, sort of like a field marshal or generalissimo. But nothing in the Mamluk government was ever that clear-cut. This was a regime run by warring cliques of soldiers. It wasn't like they had a constitution. The powers and authority of any position in the government were whatever the man who held it could seize for himself. When they were in power, Murad and Ibrahim traded these top two positions between each other, so I don't think it's very useful to think of them as distinct offices with separate competencies. Murad Bey and Ibrahim Bey were a package deal, a union forged through years of cutthroat power struggles. They had been the main players on the Egyptian political scene on and off for over 20 years, and in that time they had fought hard against all comers to stay on the top, including against the Ottoman Sultan himself. They didn't always win these struggles, but they always managed to stay alive and worm their way back into power. No Mamluk rulers had ever faced a challenge quite like the French invasion and you certainly couldn't say Murad and Ibrahim were prepared for what was coming. But they were well-practiced in the art of survival, they understood Egypt, and they knew something about coming back from total defeat. According to one source, when news of Napoleon's invasion reached Cairo, Murad immediately asked the messenger if the enemy army was mounted or on foot. When he was told they were on foot, the Bey laughed, saying, quote, Good. My personal retinue alone will be enough to destroy them. I will cut off their heads like watermelons in the fields. End quote. That now infamous line is certainly indicative of the Mamluk approach to war. In their world, heavy cavalry was still the undisputed king of the battlefield, and a good commander only needed one tactic in his repertoire the charge. 
The main factors in winning a battle were bravery, toughness, horsemanship, and skill with a lance or a blade. Not much else mattered. This line about watermelons is a fantastic bit of 18th century trash talk, but it was just bluster. Talking tough was an important part of any Mamluk commander's public image, but Murad Bey wasn't actually reckless enough to take on a large, unknown enemy army with only his personal retinue. The call went out immediately to every Mamluk in Egypt, to converge on Cairo as soon as possible, with as many men as possible. Murad and Ibrahim would be riding north to teach these French who really ruled Egypt. Soon, they would have nearly 80,000 men at their backs. But the climactic confrontation between Napoleon and the Mamluks will have to wait for next time. We'll also delve into French impressions of Egypt. They had landed with a lot of hopes and expectations for this place, and were already beginning to discover that the reality of Egypt was something else entirely. Until next time, thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Dot com.